everybody. It is so great to see you, and a special greeting to all of you joining us online from your cottage, your pontoon boat, your minivan, your yacht, wherever you're at. We are thrilled to have you along for the ride today. Uh, as you probably noticed, a couple of exciting things happening around here. Uh, Forest Hills families, the kids are going back to school tomorrow. Really? I actually, so here's the thing. Around my house, that's a big deal. I even had a friend uh, email me this week saying they were listening to Christmas music and the song they were resonating with was that lyric, and mom and dad can hardly wait for school to start. Remember that? I thought that was funny. We're moving on. Okay. Uh, we get to continue a new series this week called Made New. And in it, we're exploring a few of my favorite sections from a 2,000-year-old letter that you find in the New Testament of the Bible. Um, and for the sake of those of you who are joining us for the first time, what I want to do is briefly catch you up on where we've been so far in this series and give you a bit of background information uh, before we dig into the text. So Ephesians was written around 61 AD by a pastor named Paul to a community of Christians living in the city of Ephesus. Uh, here's a map to kind of acclimate you. Ephesus was at the time the fourth largest city in the ancient world. Uh, so think like a New York or Hong Kong of its day. Uh, it was a population center and it was also a major hub for trade, a place where products and ideas were transferred between regions. And, and that said, it was an incredibly strategic location for the transmission of the message of Jesus. It's also worth noting that Paul, the author of the letter, would have known some members of the Christian community at Ephesus personally because five years before writing a letter to them, he lived with them for almost three years. So this community would have seen Paul not only as the founding pastor of their church, but also as a spiritual mentor and friend. Now, Paul's encouragement then would have carried significant weight because he knew their world and he knew their struggles. He knew something else as well. He knew that eventually they would need to be reminded of the fact that they had been made new because of their faith in Jesus. Now, over the past few weeks, we've noted something unexpected about the way Paul structures his letter to the Ephesian Christians. Namely, before telling them to behave and he would get there, he told them over and over again that they belong. In fact, the first three chapters, the first half of the letter to the Ephesian Christians, uh, the first half doesn't contain any instructions at all. Paul doesn't tell them to stop doing anything, and Paul doesn't tell them to start doing anything. Instead, he just reminds them who they are now because of their faith in Jesus. He reminds them that they had been relationally dead to God because of the sin in their lives, and that because of their faith in Jesus, because of the forgiveness that they received by embracing his sacrifice on the cross, uh, they now have been made alive again, that they're no longer who they were. They've been given a new identity as a son or daughter of God. And Paul punctuates this message at the end of chapter 3 with one of some, some of the most beautiful words you'll find anywhere in the Bible. Here's what he says to them to sort of celebrate all that has happened for them. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. He goes on, he says that you may be filled to the full measure of all the fullness of God. In other words, Paul writes, I wish you could understand how much God loves you. Because that understanding really has the power to change everything. 
when you know how much you're loved by God, you live differently, that you serve differently, you, you give differently, you even love differently. So that's, that's what's going on in chapters 1 through 3, and what I want to do today is take the corner and, and take a look at sort of the second half of the letter to Ephesians. We'll be there this week and next, because as chapter 4 begins, Paul radically shifts his focus and begins to address their behavior, because their behavior needed some addressing. He reminds them of the radical change that should be readily apparent in the life of a Jesus follower. Now, the fact that he needs to correct them betrays a reality you may have noticed from time to time, never, of course, in yourself, but in your friends, and it goes like this. Not everybody who places their faith in Jesus ends up looking radically different as a result. You ever notice that? In my line of work, I actually encounter people regularly who have given up on church. They are attracted to me like flies to a bug zapper, I suspect, right? Um, and they've given up on church and faith and God entirely because of something I like to call Christians behaving badly. You ever notice this? Uh, in their observation, their friends and neighbors who go to church and profess faith in Jesus really aren't any better at being human than their friends who don't go to church or pray or profess faith in Jesus. So eventually, after like observing this trend, they decide that following Jesus doesn't seem to make any real difference in life. Jesus doesn't work. And so they sort of take a hiatus from their spiritual journey. And more often than not, end up running into somebody like me at Starbucks, because that is where the Lord shines his light upon my life, right? And, and whenever people with this story are willing to engage me in a conversation, and honestly, it happens more often than you'd think, I always point out that though their observations are totally fair, they are not a good reason to give up on Jesus. Moreover, uh, people professing faith in Jesus and indefinitely delaying obedience to Jesus has been a problem for as long as there have been Christians. And you can see this if you read the letters that make up the New Testament of the Bible, because they're filled with encouragement for early Christians to surrender to something I'd like to call a major renovation of their minds and their lives. It's like because you've said yes to Jesus, God wants to do deep work in your life. In other words, over time, following Jesus is supposed to completely renovate your life. I like to think of it in terms of one of those before and after shows on HGTV or the DIY network, any other addicts among us, right? Uh, my favorite, of course, is Fixer Upper, but you already knew that, right? Hashtag Chip and Joanna forever, right? Um, I love watching this show, even though every episode basically tells the same story over and over and over again. And you know how it goes. At the beginning of the program, you're introduced to a home that seems beyond hope. Have you ever noticed this? It's falling apart. Its design is tired. It's been functionally abandoned for decades, something like that. And, and at that point where, where it looks the darkest, uh, our faithful design and construction heroes enter the scene and discuss with the homeowner or the new homeowner what can be done to revitalize and revolutionize the living space. And I love that one of the two couples often seems to catch the vision while the other one's like, I am not living in that place. I don't care what you do to it, right? Uh, but then as the show progresses, uh, we get to follow the project as it unfolds. And as the builders encounter the house's resistance to change, right? There's always that one moment 
where the house has a problem that no one saw coming, and it's almost like you can predict it. It happens at minute 18 or whatever it is, right? Uh, but eventually, after an hour or so, you get to witness the big reveal of the space. It's no longer what it was. It's been renovated. It's been reborn. And the contrast between what was before and what was after is shocking and incredibly inspiring and has led more than a few of us to think, boy, if they can do that in an hour, why does my bathroom still look so bad, right? And Home Depot runs on this industry, right? So in essence, um, you know, I say that to say that should be the story of every one of us who said yes to Jesus. I mean, if someone checked in on your life before you took Jesus seriously and took a snapshot of your behaviors, your choices, the way you manage your relationships, the way you spend your time, the way you spend your money, and then checked in again after a while, after you had said yes to Jesus and was taking him seriously, there should be a noticeable and even radical change. And when there's not, you've missed something. And you wouldn't be the first to miss this. In fact, this reality is front and center in the verses from Ephesians that I want to unpack with you today. Paul even structures this section in terms of life before Jesus and life after Jesus. So let me just jump in with you. Let me show you what he writes as he begins the before section. Here's what he says. He says, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord. And you're like, he's being a little direct. Yes, he is. These are his friends and he knows what's at stake. That you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You know those Gentiles. And we're like, yeah, stay tuned, right? Yeah, the Gentiles in the futility of their thinking. He goes on. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. That doesn't sound good. Because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Oh, he's not even done. He says, having lost all sensitivity... They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And some of you are like, my kids are in the auditorium. Uh-oh, right? But here's the thing. My kids are here too, so don't worry. We'll get through this. Yeah, so Paul is writing to these people, and there's a lot going on in these verses. So what I want to do is pause and give you a bit of context. Uh, the first thing you should know is that the Christian community that Paul was addressing was made up of two types of people. People from a Jewish background who'd been raised in the synagogue, the Jewish church, and taught to follow the Old Testament laws and traditions. And then other people from a non-Jewish background, they were called the Gentiles, that would be like all of us, um, and they hadn't been raised in a synagogue, uh, and they hadn't been taught to follow the Old Testament law and traditions. Instead, they had been taught some very different assumptions about what was normal and acceptable behavior. Now, when these Gentiles crossed the line of faith in Jesus, and the early Jesus community was made up primarily of Jewish people, uh, but when these Gentiles crossed in, it should come as no surprise that they brought with them some of their habits from their previous life. And so Paul in this passage is specifically talking to the non-Jewish followers of Jesus, these Gentiles, and he's saying to them, I insist that you no longer live the sort of life you used to live. That was then, this is now. You're not who you were. You can no longer live the way you used to live. And again, in these verses, he specifically addresses what he believes to be one of the biggest challenges in the ancient world that is keeping these people from the sort of life that God intends for them, their sexual practices. And, and because Roman culture in the first century in which they had been raised, it had drifted far from what God had intended in that regard. 
And so as I said, my kids are here too, and we're going to explore some interesting stuff. Um, but my plan is to give you just enough information to follow along, while at the same time keeping things vague enough to keep you from having an awkward conversation at Kadoba after church. Okay? At least I'll try. So to understand the specific sexual practice that Paul is addressing in his letter, I need to introduce you to something called a symposium. Here is a picture of a first century painting of a Roman symposium. It looks simple enough, right? Here's a guy holding a glass of wine, another guy holding a glass of wine. In the first century, they always reclined um, at parties. And then these two guys over here are playing music for the party. So that seems simple enough. Uh, and this was the Roman, the Greek and Roman symposiums. Uh, in our world, we use a symposium for something a bit different. We talk about a symposium in modern times as a place where really smart people get together to discuss complicated ideas. They're held at major universities all over the country, um, at least before COVID. But anyway, um, but that isn't exactly what a symposium was in the first century. They did gather to exchange ideas, um, but the Greek word symposium actually translates drink together. <laughs> and so you can imagine as the evening wore on and people drank together a lot, <laughs> things got interesting. And it was common after enough rounds had been served for the evening to generate into sort of, how do I put this? A sexual free-for-all, okay? Um, in addition to the invited guests, professionals were brought in and even young teenage servants would be called in to perform favors. And this was a normal and acceptable part of life in ancient Ephesus, at least for people outside of the church. It was normal and it was widely accepted but it wasn't healthy. In fact, as I was preparing for today, I came upon an analysis of the symposium by a historian and author named Thomas Cahill. And if you, like me, enjoy Thomas Cahill, nerd herd. That's all I'm saying. The guy's books are very thick, but really interesting. And in a book called Sailing the Wine Dark Seas, Why the Greeks Matter, he describes the symposium after a bunch of exploration of what it meant and what it was like. He describes it this way. Uh, Cahill writes, there's sadness beneath the merriment. It is as if no matter how much these revelers sing, dance, howl, recite their jokes, and enjoy one another. He didn't use enjoy. I did. You're welcome. Okay. Uh, a constant authoritative note of pessimistic pain sounds beyond all their frantic attempts not to hear it. In other words, based on his study of and reflection on the symposium culture, Cahill determined that the activities of the symposium are ultimately hollow and empty. And if you think about it, we, we know this to be true. They have the potential to numb someone out and leave them at a place where they struggle to experience real emotional connection with other people. Moreover, the loss of sensitivity that leaves them at a place where they're never satisfied. It's like they always need more. All that to say, the symposium looked from the outside looking in, like it was offering life, but once inside you realize it was actually robbing people of life. And Paul is well aware of that reality. He lived in the city of Ephesus for years. And so he writes to his friends, so I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. You've got to stop. In the futility of their thinking, in the futility, the word means like the emptiness, the hollowness. They're darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. It's like they can't get 
right with God because they keep going back to this old way because of the ignorance that's in them due to the hardening of their hearts. That's that thing that happens when you do something you know you shouldn't do over and over and over again and after a while it doesn't even feel wrong. He says their hearts are hardened, having lost all sensitivity. They've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. It's like Paul writes to them, listen, sexuality is like an appetite and if you overindulge it, it just gets bigger. You've got to get away from it. And, and, and so just, just remember with me, Paul is writing to people who'd become a part of the Jesus movement and who had come out of this culture. Or perhaps better, Paul is writing to people who'd become a part of the Jesus movement who should have come out of this culture but hadn't yet. He's writing to people who have a new identity. They're sons and daughters of God because you get there by placing your faith in Jesus. It isn't what you do. So they have new identities, but they have old habits. I mean, these are church people. And he needs them to understand the symposium was a part of your past. It's not supposed to be a part of your future. That's the old you. That's not the new you. That's who you were. That's not who you are becoming. That's before. It's not after. And so he writes, friends, you've got to break away from that. It's got to go. It's robbing you of the life God has for you. And, and, and by the way, um, when Paul writes them that they need to break away from the symposium culture, this wouldn't have been new information to them. They already knew what they needed to do. Which brings us to the second part of Paul's communication in this passage. He's talked about their life before, and now he addresses what life needs to look like after. Here's, here's what he says. He writes, that, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. And, and they're going, oh, how would Paul know that? Paul's like, I'm the one that told you. So busted, right? Yeah, it's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. And you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. He says, you were taught, as he goes on, with regard to your former way of life. Okay, here's what you need to do with what you brought to and across the line of faith in Jesus. To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And to be, he says, made new in the attitude of your minds. You need like a new imagination. You need to change your thinking. To put on and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, Paul spent three years with these people. He knew them and they knew him. And he had spent hours instructing them on what life needed to look like if they were going to really follow Jesus. It's like Paul like, calls him in a circle. He's like, guys, we've talked about this. But see, they were having a hard time breaking away. Or perhaps they were telling themselves they would get around to changing their habits later. Hey, just one more symposium. Just one more party. Well, in this passage, I love that Paul leverages three images to help them understand what he's trying to say. And they're images that would have made sense even to people that were illiterate. First, he tells them to take off their old self. It's almost like it's, a, it's a, an outfit. And he said, it doesn't fit you right anymore. It's, it's not gonna, you're, you're not going to wear that outfit anymore. And then he says, you know, change your thinking. You've got to adjust your thinking and align your thinking with what Jesus thinks. And because if you can do that, then the third thing becomes possible. Then you put on the new self. So take off the old, change your thinking, and put on the new self. Change your thinking. Agree with God about where life is found. But, but he says, ultimately, you've got to take off the old and put on the new. 
it's almost, he says to them, there are some things you used to wear, but you can't wear them anymore. You've got to get rid of them and don't send them to goodwill. I know there wasn't a goodwill, but go with me, right? Yeah, don't send them to goodwill. It's like, you don't want anyone else to pick up these clothes either. Strike a match and watch them burn. And then put on the new you, the new way of thinking and the new way of being in the world. It is that Paul is suggesting that they make radical changes in their life that ultimately will be better for them and better for everyone else. They're to stop engaging in their old habits and start following Jesus. Okay, that was then. That was them. What about us now? I mean, I don't imagine any of us frequent Roman symposiums. You know, and so if you're in church for the first time, you're like, don't go to the Roman symposium. Got it. Helpful. Good, right? But what I did this week is I was, I was preparing. I thought, okay, what if Paul were going to write to us and speak to us in our world to encourage followers of Jesus along the same lines today? And so for those of us who are here and we've said yes to Jesus, like what would Paul, how would Paul have shaped the message for you and me? He, I have a couple of suggestions. Here's, here's, he would, I think maybe he would say something like this. Those of you who are sleeping around need to cease and desist, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, and, and some of us would say, okay, you know, when I first went to college, there was this season where I was sort of exploring and, and I didn't really have a vibrant faith life. I mean, I may have gone to youth group and I got away from it, whatever. And, and I got in this habit and this pattern. And then I had this moment of spiritual awakening and I, I realized that, yes, Jesus is for me. But I got this habit and I know, it's, I know it's not good for me. And I know it's not God's best for me. And I've been telling, I, I guess I've been saying later. I'll, 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 I know I need to change it, but I'm just, and it's almost like God is standing at the door of your heart going, we need to do some renovating, not because I hate you, but because I love you and there's a better way and I want to show you a better way and I want to bring you into a better future. But the first thing you got to do is you got to take that off. You got to stop doing the things that you were doing. And, and it's a habit and I know, and he's like, we need a new habit to replace the old habit. So those of you sleeping around need to cease and desist. One more. Or like, yeah, one more. Um, something like this. Those of you who frequent sites on the internet that you know you shouldn't need to stop immediately. Right? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, that's awesome. So don't, yeah. But if, for the rest of us, like if there's these sites, and, and again, it's, well, I mean, I grew up and the internet was a thing and, and I sort of found my way into this, this world online and Every time I enter the world, I have a sense this isn't right. But when I first started, I didn't really have a vibrant faith life. And, and then I had a bunch of stuff happen, and I found myself back in church. And I remember the day that I sort of agreed with God that I needed to be rescued from my sin. And I said yes to Jesus, and he came into my life. And I know now that I have a new identity, but I have a new identity, and I have an old habit. And it just keeps pulling me back. It's like there's a tractor beam and it's like God is standing at the door of your heart with a sledgehammer, gentle sledgehammer, right? But he's ready to renovate. And he's knocking, and it's like, and so Paul says, would you let him in? Would you let him in? I mean, if this is your story, you know that the deeper you get, the darker it gets. And you know it's not good for you. That's the old you. That's not the new you. That's not who God wants you to become. That's your past. It's not your future. So if, if, this is, if this is part of your story, I just plead with you, confess to a close friend, get some accountability, reach out to us, we can connect you with something, but just put it away. That's before Jesus. It shouldn't be after. 
And in this, you just see like the flavors of sexual sin change with technology and, and time, but the principle remains the same. Now, at this point, I know what some of you are thinking. You're sitting there thinking, I'm so glad we finally talked about this in church. I am going to make sure my teenagers watch this three times, and we're going to have a quiz afterwards, right? And, and, and this will be awesome. And I'm so thankful we're addressing this topic, but really, this isn't my struggle. And if that's you, that's great. Um, but I also need you to recognize that the image of taking off something old and putting on something new works for all sorts of other things in life as well. So what I just showed you is right at the beginning of chapter 4, and as the letter progresses, Paul just begins to apply this same image over and over and over again. He says things as the chapter unfolds like this. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. Truth-telling should be a hallmark of followers of Jesus. And so Paul writes, deception had a role in your old life, but it has no place in your new life. It was before it can't be after. Or, or how about this one? A few verses later, Paul says, He who is stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. And this is awesome because you're like, He who is stealing must steal no longer. I thought he was writing to church people. Yep, he is. And you're like, for shame, Ephesian Christians, right? Uh, but there were people in the church who were stealing. And Paul wants them to know that that was a part of their life before Jesus, and it's not welcomed in their life after they placed their faith in Jesus. That was before, it shouldn't be after. And then, then there's this encouragement. Um, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, mm. but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Jesus wants his followers to pay attention to the words that come out of our mouths because words are powerful things. And one of the things that is to mark the life of a Jesus follower is a more deliberate and intentionally encouraging use of language to build other people up and not to tear them down. And so Paul would say, a misappropriation of your words was before. It shouldn't be after. And, and I know it's a process and, and you're going to fail, you'll decide to change and you'll revert back to old patterns. But it's like Paul says, you just got to keep moving in that direction. It's who you were. It's not who you are becoming. You'll get there with God's help. You just have to keep working on it. Okay, one more just for fun. Um, Paul writes this, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander along with every form of malice. And I love that. Paul's just like, we're just going to go wide here, right? Just like, there's a bunch of stuff. It's not helpful. You know it's not helpful. And you see this where it's head, even in your church gatherings. And you've got to take it off. Take it off. Agree with God in your mind and heart about where life is found. And then to begin to put on something new. There's a bunch of stuff that you carried over the line of faith in Jesus and God graciously allows it to you. He loves you enough to accept you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you as you are. And so Paul's like, so I'm dropping you a little wisdom, right? Yeah. He's like, I want you to start paying attention to your behavior so that you be can begin along with the help of God to adjust your behavior. You're no longer who you were. So you no longer should behave the way you used to behave. You no longer should do some of the things that you used to do. All of which brings me to a really great question. And it's a question for all of us. It's a question I ask myself often. And it goes like this. 
you know, what do you sense God desires to change next in his renovation of your life? What do you desire God desire, what do you think God desires to change next in the renovation of your life? And a few of you who are super introspective are like, how long do you have, right? I am a piece of work. I, if it's home improvement show, I'm like the house that's been abandoned for 25 years. Hey, if that's you, the good news is God is ready. And it will be really easy to pick something to start working on, right? Um, but where do you sense God prompting you that something has got to go, that something in your life isn't part of who God is creating you to be? Whatever that next step is for you, I plead with you to take it because the one doing the renovation isn't against you. He is for you. And he has a dream for your life. And he knows that sin robs you of life and it robs people you love of life. And, and so he's just basically saying, I'll lead, will you follow? I love you enough to give you the choice. Will you partner with me in the renovation of your heart? And your life. So whatever that next step is for you, I plead with you to take it. You'll be better for it. And so will everybody else. Well, I wanted to leave you with a few questions to discuss over lunch or in your big idea group. Um, and as we say each week, discussion is a great way to move this content from a concept uh, to a reality in your life. So I just three questions once again today. Um, they go like this. The first one, have you ever wondered if Jesus really makes a difference in life after observing Christians behaving badly? So that's kind of a, that might be a fun way to get the party started, right? Um, yeah, where have you observed sort of an inconsistency? I thought Christians were supposed to, but then they're over here and it just sort of made you wonder. Uh, next question goes like this. Why do you think Paul reminds Christians that they belong before encouraging them to behave? And th this is one of my key takeaways from the letter to the Ephesians. So if some of you are like, I think we've asked that question before. I think we did, but I really want to make sure you, you get this. What I see here is this idea that God makes rules for his kids. He doesn't make rules for people who aren't yet his kids. And so he always starts with adoption or welcoming you to his family, and then he wants to teach you how to live. And so this is why I think it's just so, so critical for us to understand that we belong before we behave because then we see God as a heavenly father and not a cosmic police officer waiting to give us a ticket. So that's number two. Number three goes like this. Uh, share a story of something in your life that has changed for the better because of your faith in Jesus. And this is something, you know, churchy people will call like a testimony. And this is, this is awesome. This is a great way for people to see the difference that Jesus can make in life. So please uh, take the opportunity this week to do that with somebody that you know and love. And, and now I'd like to invite you to stand. Um, and online, you don't have to stand. We won't know anyway, but we'll just close our time in some prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. Thank you for grace. Thank you that for thousands of years you have welcomed people into your family who had a lot of work to do on behavior. Thank you that you love us anyway. Thank you as well that you love us enough to teach us a better way, a new way to walk in this world. And I pray that as we continue to trust you more and more where life is found, that the light, your light, would shine through our lives brighter and brighter 
and that people would look at our lives and see the undeniable impact that your son has made. For today, we just say thank you. We bless you. We love you. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Everyone said, amen. Grace and peace, friends. We'll see you next week.